0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer. The
1: Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on
2: today's biggest ideas. 50 years ago, We landed on the moon, and we imagined that in 2001, we would be travelling vast distances into space.
1: This week's podcast is brought to you in partnership with Airbus,
2: global leaders in aeronautic space and related services. As our speakers go into the unknown. Now, a new age of space exploration is underway, one that's driven by companies, billionaires, and new players like China and India. Should we applaud a return to grand adventures with the potential to replenish the planet's depleted resources from the Moon, from Mars, or even from beyond? So should we give up on our
1: space odysseys and recognise the scale of space leaves us trapped amid the barren planets of our own solar system? Or is it essential to being human that we reach out into the unknown? Taking this on, we have astronomer royal and former president of the Royal Society, an author of On the Future, Prospects for Humanity, Martin Rees. Philosopher and author of Nobody Owns the Moon, currently based at King's College, London, Tony Milligan. And finally, Senior Strategist for the Space Systems Division of Airbus, Elizabeth Seward. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Once you've finished, please do head over to our website where we bring you weekly recommendations from what's trending at Philosophy for Our Times to more suggested episodes on today's topic. Head over to www.iitv. Back now to Emily Grossman, who hosts this week's
2: episode. The opening topic, of course, is, is it essential to being human that we reach out into the unknown? So without further ado, I'm going to kick off with Martin Rees. Could you please give us your take on this topic?
3: Right. Well, of course, we've got to remember that when men land on the moon, uh, that was done for political reasons. And there was no follow-up because the Americans had spent 4% of their federal budget on it, and it wasn't worth continuing. Uh, But I think the big change is that robots are so much better that the practical case for sending people into space has more or less evaporated. Robots can do all the things that people would have done, fabricating things, exploring, etc. So I do hope that robots will explore all the planets of our solar system. But... Humans, if they explore, I think will go as high-risk adventurers. People like Sir Randolph Fiennes prepared to take very high risks. So my scenario for manned space flight is that it should not be supported by taxpayers, it should be supported by the billionaires and sponsorship, et cetera, and it should be done um, as an uh, uh, adventure and spectator sport. But I hope that some people do land on Mars uh, by the end of a century, um, accepting very high risks. Um, But I think it's crazy to believe in mass emigration to Mars. It's a dangerous delusion to think that we can escape Earth's problems by going to Mars. Dealing with climate change is hard, but it's a doddle compared to making Mars an attractive place to live. (laughs) Um, But if you look very far far ahead, um, I think we can imagine that these people on Mars are going to be ill-adapted, and they will use all the technologies of uh, bio and cyborg and gene modification, et cetera, to adapt to that strange environment. And they will be um, uh, the precursors of our post-human species, and they may become completely electronic. We'll be comfortable here on Earth, we won't change so fast. But they will become electronic, and then, if they are near immortal, then, of course, they would even be able to voyage beyond our solar system because that is certainly a post-human, not-human enterprise. So uh, practical uh, space doesn't need humans at all, but I hope there we go as an adventure.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Martin. And over to you, Tony.
4: OK. I think that there is something that the machinery, robots, technology can't do for us, and that is to have certain kinds of experiences. Now, space opens up a range of those experiences, but broadly speaking, I think, I'm in agreement with, with Martin about certain aspects of this. I think that the idea of mass migration to Mars is a is a, is a crazy notion. Uh, I don't think that there is any inbuilt, innate human wanderlust that means that in some way we would be running against our human nature and, and, and malcontented if we failed to go to uh, out into space i think in certain respects it's a done deal that we are going to go i don't think the drivers for that are as it were intrinsic to human nature i think the drivers for that are intrinsic to the kinds of socio uh, economic and political <coughs> systems that we are that we are we are generating i would love the idea that the private sector could carry the the burden and that it should not fall upon the uh, upon the multitude. I do have a reservation about that, or two reservations. One is that to some extent you have to buy your way into influence upon programs. So if that's what we're doing in terms of state involvement, then that's a, a plausible thing to do. And And secondly, I think that if we want to go into space in a way which abides by certain ethical standards of, of justice and fairness, that it, it shouldn't be simply an arena for America, Russia, maybe India and some of the larger players. If we are to have those other voices in space from the smaller nations eh, and, say, from even from indigenous people who have launch sites set down in, in, the, in their territory as well, then, eh, then the state has to have a... A role in the funding of space programs to try and find pathways for those voices to be heard.
2: Thank you.
5: And lastly over to you, do you think it's essential to human life that we voyage into the unknown? I mean I would argue that it is and I would challenge your, your views on, on human wanderlust. We've always explored, we've gone to the next valley, we've crossed continents and we've crossed oceans And we've done it to survive. We've done it to find new food resources, new land. Um, Now that we're powered by money, we do it for wealth and for riches. Um, Raleigh sailed the world, but he did it so he could bring back a ship full of goods for the queen and uh, and show his um, prowess with uh, with his new spices and things. And neurobiologists have discovered, in fact, that um, curiosity and new discoveries are rewarded in the pleasure center of the brain in the same way that other basic instincts like food are. (laughs) And if we take this into computers and machine learning, um, programs that they put a reward bonus for trying new things actually um, achieve better results faster than programs without. And many programs without this extra bonus get stuck in a loop because they can't find another way out of a problem. And so I think it is um, inbuilt in us. Um, I think space has been inspiring us for a long time. I think that the the Apollo program was indeed a a political driver, but that you can't really say that we stopped when it finished. We didn't have that same impetus as um, racing against the Russians, but it it changed and it transformed into building the International Space Station and collaboration with the Russians, and a collaboration that has continued even in the face of political discord. Mike Griffin is a, an ex-administrator of NASA, and he described space exploration as cathedral building, that in the old days, um, people built cathedrals for the majesty of the building. And in fact, there they were long-term projects that the, the sort of instigators of sometimes never even saw the end, if you look at the Gaudi building in, in Barcelona. But along the way, they learned a lot of other things. They learned how to work together, they learned the challenges, and they advanced civil engineering that also benefited everybody in their normal house buildings. And so if we look at the grand um, projects of space in a similar way, we are making international partnerships and working together, and hopefully leaving something as inspiring behind. Thank you.
2: So you've heard the three pitches for the theme of this debate. Now in 1969, it seemed like exploring the solar system was sort of the the biggest priority of our time. However, now we have global warming, we have an abundance of political crises going on here on Earth. So the first theme of the debate is going to be, should we go into space now? Is there any point? Is this something we should be exploring now? And if so,
5: why? So Elizabeth, if I can put that to you first of all. Well, I mean, I mentioned it a little bit, but um, the question of should we be in space, almost, amused mute. we we'd rely on space so much in our everyday life. Um, we build satellites for all sorts of reasons, but we use it for weather forecasting, for climate tracking, for GPS so you know where you are, but also the timing system in it is used for banking and transactions. If if we didn't do anything in space today, actually life would not be as you know it now. It would be quite different. but if we talk about people in space, um, then we've been in the International Space Station since the year 2000. There have continuously been people in orbit above our heads since that time. So it's 19 years on now. Um, and, and there's an argument from the scientists that the science that they do, the microgravity research, isn't really worth the cost but there are some interesting spin off technologies if you look at the, the economics. So, uh, ESA said that in 10 years they've had 150 new commercial technologies, so people making money off it, with 20 new companies. And some of these are things that are, are essential. So, a uh, flight suit monitoring is now used for babies and sudden infant death syndrome. Or a planetary radar is being used to detect landmines. And so, a lot of the benefits from space are things that we wouldn't even imagine when we started, but are really valuable. But then, should we not then be making a distinction between kind of
2: close space exploration and like much further exploration, because obviously, presumably, we can't have any advantages from far exploration and uh, and awareness of outer space to help us with climate change or a lot of the things that you mentioned.
5: Um, Well, the Apollo era um, uh, was that sort of far away space at the time. it actually it revolutionised how people made liquid oxygen because they needed so much for the rocket fuel that it benefited hospitals all across the world because the second biggest user of the liquid oxygen were the hospitals. So you don't you never know what benefits you're going to get. Um, the way that we'll have to communicate on the moon could be invaluable for some things on Earth.
2: Uh, Tony, what's your views on uh, should we be exploring space at this political time in our
4: in our revolution? Okay, I. Buy into the idea that uh, we do need to distinguish between uh, nearby regions of space. Whether we go to the moon, whether we go to Mars, and, and so on, we need satellites. Our entire way of life depends upon having that. That needs to be that needs to be in place. Whether we should be more ambitious than that, that's where the, the difficult ethics kick in. And I'm going to almost sit in the fence, but not quite sit the fence. I am going to fall on one side rather than the other. I am going to fall on the side of uh, saying that space exploration is something that we should be doing, but it, it's, it's a close call. There is no single conclusive ethical justification for going into space. There's nothing that will work. I, yes, there are spin-offs. You can get spin-offs from any major investment in technology. You don't need to go into space in order to get these things. And some of the spin-offs may not be entirely as directly related to space programs as we like. After Apollo we were asked to believe that uh, that Bakelite and Velcro, you know, (laughs) we would not have these things. Actually, these were off-the-shelf technologies that became popularized through the space programs. But, but, but on Tuesdays and Thursdays I'm kinda convinced that there are good ethical reasons for us to go. One of these is the science. You can do a lot of science through automation and there are lots of things that robotic technologies will be able to do in space that humans will never be able to do even with various forms of a genetic modification. but but, but there are some things that humans are good at. There are things that we notice, there are things that evolution has equipped us to to recognize that are difficult to get the machines to, to do. So while it is the case that we are still better than them at doing some of these things, while that's the case, we should think seriously about the advantages of humans being in space. And secondly, there is the question about the future of life as such. Now, I'm not going to offer the possibility of human expansion outside of the solar system. At the moment, that looks extremely implausible. But we may, at some point in time, be in a place where we can send life in its most rudimentary forms outside of the solar system and do so in reasonably safe ways that we can't do just now couldn't do the foreseeable future, we shouldn't be trying to do this just now, but at some point in time, we might be able to secure the future of life beyond its term within the solar system here. It's possible, it's not a definite, but if we are on this planet the only example of life, with the exception of the tardigrades we've just dumped on the moon now, but if if we are it, then we may have, again, Tuesdays and Thursdays, I think that we may have a duty to explore the possibility of extending the presence of life elsewhere with qualifications, with the acceptance that there are a number of risks involved in the
3: process.
2: Thank you. And what about you, Martin? Do you think we Um, should
4: be
3: exploring space? um, (laughs) Well, first, I'd like to emphasise that we do depend on space every day in practical ways for satnav. Um, communication, etc., and that's great. But I think my important point is that uh, as robots get more effective and AI gets better, the practical need for people in space is getting weaker. And of course, it's far more expensive to send people into space, because you have to bring them back. And so, for that reason, um, I'm very skeptical about the case for sending humans, although I hope that they will go um, accepting high risks Funded in cu- by cut-price projects that can accept higher risks than uh, NASA or ESA can impose on publicly funded civilians. That's why I think we should leave uh, manned spaceflight to to the private sector. And uh, good luck to Elon Musk and other people if they want to go to Mars. Elon Musk says he wants to die on Mars, but not on impact. And he might achieve that. But um, I think. Um, Space travel, the, the moon landing, was of course a wonderful event. Whereas the space station, um, it was poor value for money. Um, it only made the newspapers when the loo failed or when um, uh, Chris Hadfield played his guitar uh, and uh, sang David Bowie, etc. cetera. Um, and uh, it, it wasn't of any use really. And now robots can do as much as a human geologist trundling around Mars like the uh, Curiosity probe now is. So there's no, no practical case. Um, and so I think that we should um, uh, promote robotics, basically, and also technology, because I, I d- it does make sense to perhaps um, have robotic fabricators which can build huge lightweight structures under zero-g. Solar energy collectors, uh, huge telescopes, or antennae and things like that. That's a p- exciting new technology, and to take some industry away from the Earth may be good, but that won't need human beings. It can be done by robotic fabricators. So, humans, if they go, they will be e- explorers and risk-takers, accepting very high risk. And we should cheer them on, because in the long run, they are, perhaps, going to be important, um, because they will use all the opportunities offered by cyborg technology, genetic modification to adapt to this alien environment, um, maybe on Mars, um, and um, there would be a few settlers there, and they're the ones who perhaps may download themselves into something electronic, and then interstellar travel may be feasible. But it's a post-human, not a human activity, to, to go to uh, uh, other s- stars and planets around them. Uh, human beings as such Um, probably won't get beyond Mars. They could perhaps go to Jupiter uh, and come back, but it's not uh, um, a feasible uh, goal for mass emigration, for instance. So I'm a skeptic about manned space flights, in other words.
0: Do
1: you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
2: Thank you. So that sort of brings us onto our second theme, really, which is about the scale of space. And you know, science fiction has often promised us that we can have intergalactic space travel. In fact, according to science fiction, we should be doing it already. Uh, But given that we've not actually made any progress, really, outside of our own solar system, do you think the the sheer size and scale of what we're looking at necessarily means that we will be confined to exploring simply our own solar system? Mm
3: Yes, yes. Um, Well, you say we. And if by we, you mean human beings, I think we are going to begin fine. But I think one point which we realize as astronomers uh, is that the future is as long as the past or longer. It's taken four billion years for us to evolve from the first life. Uh, Our sun has six billion years before it dies out and the expanding universe may go on forever. As Woody Allen said, eternity is very long, especially towards the end. (laughs) And so on that time scale, there could be future evolution, uh, which is um, uh, uh, as dramatic as evolution from a simple bug to a human being. And so any creatures watching the death of the sun will be utterly different from us. And moreover, I'd strengthen that because evolution up till now has taken place on the Darwinian timescale, natural selection, whereas in future it'll be a sort of secular intelligent design, where machines design more intelligent machines, etc. And so uh, if we think on the timescale of astronomers and think of of millions or even billions of years, then it's certainly possible that uh, even if life or intelligent life is now unique to the Earth, it could spread through the galaxy and beyond on that much longer time scale. But as I say, that won't be human beings. It'll be creatures as different from us as we are from slime mold.
2: <laughs> Elizabeth, what's your views on whether we should actually be using humans to go to intergalactic travel if we could in the future?
5: Well, um, as Martin says, at the minute, we can't. The timescales are just far too long. But in the same way that, that humans have evolved and evolution has happened, um, so the same has happened in physics and in, and in propulsion and in exploration. So um, the science fiction writers talk about wormholes and singularities and warp drive. And at the minute, you know, none of those are possible. But who's to say where we will be in the next one, two, three hundred years? You know? the the phone or the watch that you have in your pocket used to take the size of this room, and so we've come that far in less than 100 years. Where will we be in a few more? we're almost preparing for it now because we are building the telescopes to look out there and see what's there. So we, can, we have found extrasolar planets, and, and we're building some telescopes that will actually be able to tell you if there's oxygen in the atmospheres of some of the planets around other stars. So the discoveries we're making now are amazing, and if we find some of those things, I think the pressure for us to find a way to get there will be even bigger.
2: Great, thank you. And, and Tony? <laughs> yeah, this
4: is a... The the default assumption has to be that we can't get out of the solar system. We, humans. We can send life in rudimentary forms elsewhere, but the the enormous distances mean that everyone would almost certainly die on the way you'd be building. If you build generation ships to travel to some, uh, some distant solar system, which simply means another solar system because they're all distant, you face a number of of practical problems, but you also face a problem about motivation. Suppose you were in a position to send a world ship to another solar system. We have the big plan for that. We have an idea, we are motivated, we have our ethical theories and our our theories about the future of humanity, which to our, our minds justify the process but this is a multi-generational ship. What guarantees are there? And what's the likelihood that people four and five generations further down the line will share our ideals? Do we share the ideals of the Victorians? If we were sent out in, into space with their project, we would not complete it, because we think that in a number of ways they are out of date. So you have those, those problems, not simply of a technical nature, but problems which are associated with a, a rudimentary aspect of human activity in space. And that is, that while we may be interested to watch what goes on in our lifetimes, the human movement into space is essentially a multi-generational project. We have to think in terms of the stability of goals, are the goals that we start out with, goals that two and three generations further down the line, they will continue to pursue, that they will think of as relevant. We have to think in terms of starting out projects that we will not see the fruits of if we are to fully realize our human potential into into space. We have to do what we don't do, typically in terms of our political and social deliberations here on Earth, which is to think of ourselves, present generation, and not of future generations which incidentally is one aspect of space exploration, which I think is good from an ethical point of view, that this only makes sense when you think about people in the future and not just ourselves.
2: Okay, thank you. So moving on to our third theme then of the debate. I mean, we, in the last century, the sort of space race gave us a lot of hope. It gave us a lot of inspiration and kind of th- thought of the, the, the potential of the human race. So can we expect this, this modern-day space race, which is driven by commercial giants such as Musk's SpaceX, to inspire that same level of wonder? In other words, what is the potential today of the space adventures, and indeed, what are the risks that come along with that? Martin, could you speak yes, to that? yes.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I would question how inspiring uh, these uh, exploits were. Uh, We know it was the Cold War and superpower rivalry that stimulated Apollo, and we wouldn't have done it otherwise. Um, I think that what inspires us is uh, uh, ways in which science is allowing us, in principle, to make a far better world for everyone here on Earth and has given us uh, uh, wonderful uh, views through robotic probes of uh, the other worlds in our solar system and told us, as you said, about uh, other worlds around other stars. So we're learning uh, marvellous things about the universe and I think these are inspirational and um, we don't need to go there just as we could be fascinated by dinosaurs without feeling we want time travel back to their era. You know? So I, I just think that we need to explore um, using robots. We need to understand um, and there'll be all kinds of spin-off from that understanding. But I think that um, uh, exploring the hostile environment of space with human beings is something which we shouldn't prioritise. And as I say, I think those who go will have to be the kind of people prepared to accept very high risks. And that's why they'll have to be privately funded. Um, So good luck to a few of them. But I really don't see that manned spaceflight is ever going to be very important.
4: I I think that one of the things that that is... Part of being human is a sense of vulnerability and we're afraid of various things. But in the context of space, as in the context of other areas of life, the things that we're afraid of aren't necessarily the things that that, that get us. So people are tremendously worried. Some people, especially those who are sceptical about space, they're worried about taking the worst features of humanity uh, and spreading them them elsewhere. And for some various reasons, these are sometimes associated with uh, private enterprise projects. I don't think that the division between private enterprise and state-led projects in space is the thing that we have to worry about. I think the thing that we have to worry about is that our reach is not as, as large as our ambition. That means that the resources which we can access are, in many cases, exhaustible. They're finite. The strategic resources that you want in the moon on Mars or so on, are limited, and that means competition. Whether that's state competition, whether that's groups of states competing, or whether it's private sector uh, agents competing against one, one another. It's the political fallout of competition for limited resources in space that, uh, that we need to, uh, to be primarily concerned about getting over.
2: Elizabeth, do you think a sort of commercial space race could be a, a useful thing?
5: Uh, Yeah, certainly. I mean, the the sort of advances in uh, space tourism at the minute um, mean that possibly this year, in in Virgin Galactic terms, it's always just next year, and it's been next year for 10 years. Um, But their seven-minute hop into the the sort of suborbital, their suborbital hop that will just take you through the the, uh, upper atmosphere, one day could be a trip to Australia in an hour. So, you know, the world would become a lot smaller. it is a risky venture, and um, they had their first fatal accident, and, and there will be more. But it's still a safer way to travel than it is in your car. And the people that do it know that they are taking those risks. I will just add, though, that um, uh, SpaceX itself is a fascinating case. It's. Um, uh, advertised as a commercial venture, but in fact, a significant proportion of their funding comes from NASA to build them a commercial vehicle to take astronauts to the space station, but with NASA funding. So in fact, SpaceX, um, and so it, uh, Blue Origin, which is the one founded by um, Jeff Bezos from Amazon, his is the commercial venture from the richest company in the world. And in fact, he's the only man that has those private funds to do that from his own pocket.
3: Mm. Martin. Yes. Well, I'd just like to say that um, uh, it's fine in a way, but uh, think of Concorde, which had its first flight uh, the same year as the moon landings, and we know what happened to that, and rightly so. It met no social demand. It would have given uh, a few rich people a chance to save a few hours, but quite rightly it wasn't developed. And I must say I feel the same way about Richard Branson's project. <laughs>
5: <laughs> did you ever fly on a Concorde?
3: No, no. <laughs> I'd love to. I supported the anti-Concorde campaign. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
5: So if we did
2: have a sort of new space yeah. race, could, is there a danger that that could kind of... Uh, reignite some sort of political rivalries or kind of feed into some of the other political issues that are going on in the world.
5: Ooh, possibly. The, the, the thing that's more interesting to me on a, a commercial space race is the, the adherence to the rules that everybody lives by now. So uh, Mars itself is a protected territory. And this international treaties. Uh, you can't take any life with you. So the Mars rover that we're building has to be super clean. It's allowed less spores than are on the tip of your finger. It has to be sort of clean at every level. Elon Musk does not care about that and has said so. He um, he wants to send people there, and, and he has no desire in protecting the planet or saving that science for anybody else to do. Um, And so if you let people go off and do things commercially, then then the rules get bent and broken.
2: And also, is there an argument, I know it's something that you're passionate about, Martin, is that given that there are so many political problems and social problems and challenges going on 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 our own planet today, climate change being one, as we talked about earlier, Mm Um, is it foolish to think that we, could actually, we should be spending time and energy and, and money sending people into space when actually we could, should be focusing on what's going on here on our mm-hmm. own planet?
3: Yes. Well, I don't think taxpayers' money should be used to send mm-hmm. people into space. I think it should be used for um, practical uses of space, for fabrication and solar energy, etc. But uh, uh, I think the uh, private uh, sources should support the man's program if they wish to, not government's. Tony I think the, the
4: big money really ends up in the, the, the military budgets more, more generally and if you want to look to somewhere to redirect funds from, then that would be the place to the place to go. It is however, enormously difficult to get the politics right to effect a shift of large-scale funds from projects you don't necessarily think are are entirely justified over to the areas that you would, that you would like. It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big ask and a, and a, a, a tough ask. In terms of pa- planetary, planetary protection, yes, we do have a planetary protection in, in, in place, and it's, it works well up to a point. A, people do all of the right things, but once you have much more infrastructure of world, and once people start for real, the process of asteroid mining, and once they realise that that Mars is strategically located uh, for any process of uh, asteroid mining out in the main belt, then you will begin to have serious problems in terms of planetary environmental protection, uh, which is a much more broader concept than simply avoiding the the dropping of microbes or the returning of of microbes.
2: Elizabeth, do you have any thoughts on the, the sort of impact that channeling some of our resources into space travel, space discovery might have on, on our ability to
5: cope with the very real problems that are going on here on Earth? I think when you look at the budgets involved, they're quite different, and I think the benefits you get from working in a big international project are, are valid and enormous. The, the space station where the Russians, I know I keep talking about this, but the, the Russians and the Americans work together in a way that they, they don't in any other arena there's joint training. There's, um, the Americans have to learn to speak Russian. The Russians have, have, well, speak English, um, and so it, it gives you a collaboration. These sort of these big, grand, global projects give you a, a, a way of collaborating that. Uh, that are, and, and it's because of these long timescales that means that they're outside the political reef and I think that's where the value lies and then all the other benefits such as the inspiration come from that um, when we sent Tim Peake to the space station the education program reached uh, 6 million children and then 30 million after that just by sending one man and so um, yeah I think it's worth it
2: It's an interesting take on it, isn't it? That actually it's ultimately helping us by promoting kind of international relationships and collaboration, which is what of course we need in order to then tackle a lot of the more earth-based challenges that we have in our society today. So I think that's a good time for us to, to bring things to an end. So that just leaves me to thank so much our three panelists for being here today. Thank you, the audience, for your great questions. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy
1: for Our Times. The podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas in partnership with Airbus. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Martin Rees, Tony Milligan, and Elizabeth Seward. For more on today's topic, why not have a listen to episode 42, Space Hacks with Patricia Lewis, which looks at the risk that terror attacks on satellites pose for the future of humanity. We'd love to hear from you, so please do head over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. Be sure to tell anyone you know that might be interested in the podcast and, of course, tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's Biggest
0: Ideas.